So, I'm going to take a break from Colossians again. And I decided to do a sermon on resting this Sunday. Resting. Thanksgiving is a time of rest, so I thought a simple sermon on rest or resting would be good. Why don't we stand up, we'll have a word of prayer, and then I'll talk to you about resting. Father, we give thanks and we give praise to you for this time that we have together to learn from your word. We thank you that we were able to be with family and friends over these last few days, enjoying each other's company and having a little downtime, some at least. God, we just ask and pray that you help us to see the importance of rest in our lives. For you created us, and that's part of how you made us to need to rest. And Father, I just ask and pray that you are glorified through this sermon. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So rest is seen in God's creation everywhere. Just ponder that sometime. Rest is seen in God's creation everywhere in his created order. It is seen. For example, the fields were to rest on the seventh year. Remember that? Even in that, in his word, in his law, in his created order, he designed it so that the fields are to rest in the seventh year. So they can rejuvenate themselves. You know, we pour chemicals all on it now and make it go every year. And then we do crazy stuff to the vegetation so you can't even eat it. It's got to go get processed before you can eat it or use it. And yeah, we've all seen king corn, right? <laughs> so it's like what they do, you, you go by and used to be these nice rows of corn, now they're all like jammed together. But God designed it that it would need rest. The land was to rest so it could re-nutritionalize itself and benefit us. God himself rested. Is this not true? He did. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that after he had created for seven days and six days in a row, he rested on the seventh day. So God himself has rested. And he made us to need rest. It's part of his created order for us as human beings to need rest. You must sleep, right? Some people I know can get by with five hours. I always feel like they're a little dangerous (laughs) because they have a lot more wake time to create mischief in the world or wreak havoc than the rest of us who need eight hours. But what we learn about the fact that man needs to sleep every night in a 24-hour period is that he's limited. Man is limited. God is limited, man. What happens if you don't sleep? We'll take you off to the psych ward because you will go crazy if you don't sleep. Sleep deprivation is a tool used by tyrants in order to persecute people. 
You know that, right? Sleep deprivation is not good. I know we live in a world that says believe in yourself. Correct? That is the religion of Americanism. Believe in yourself. But you can believe in yourself all you want, that you don't need to sleep. But we will take you over to the psych ward if you don't get the sleep you need. Man is limited. He thinks he's something. He can do anything. Believe in yourself. But he can't. It's the arrogance of man that teaches that doctrine. And so he declared that man should rest also on the seventh day. You work six days, and then on the seventh day, you were supposed to rest. And even if you don't follow that, six days and one day, you'll eventually break down. It's a no-brainer. You can go ahead and go seven days. We don't work, we don't rest. The seventh day isn't a day of rest anymore with most people. It's a day of less. (laughs) Not rest, less. We still do all kinds of stuff. We're on our devices, right? It's, these phones are like the new cigarette of this generation. Got a whoo. Right? You need to rest this thing. I went and seen my nutritionist. Call him my nutritionist. He's a great brother in Christ, and he knows a lot about health. And um, he was checking me out, and he goes, man, you got anything going on up here? (laughs) I go, yeah, lots of thoughts, (laughs) lots of stress. And he goes, yeah, you ain't kidding. So he gave me some brain food. Brain food is good. You need to feed your brain. Yes. And we agree, Frank, you do. (laughs) So we are, I will get you all this stuff. (laughs) Recommended to me, and I'm now taking. I know niacin is inside there, if that means anything. Um, But God wants us to rest the seventh day. Even if you continue on, it doesn't, you know, go that good, right? Eventually, you will break down, and you'll need to just throw a day away where you don't do anything. You just vegetate. Or sickness does that for you. You know the number one builder for the immune system is rest, sleep. It's the number one thing. So here's the, some of you, we're all different ages here, right? Some of you are learning. You hit in that 30, 40-year-old range. You still think you can burn the midnight oil and get up early the next day, and you begin to realize you can't. Sickness comes your way, teaches you a thing or two. Even this happens to teenagers and people in their 20s. Anyone with a brain gets smarter as they get older, and they realize, you know what? I actually better sleep. I better get rest, because if I don't, I'm going to get sick. I remember in Detroit, I worked a job where we worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week. 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And um, you know what they found out? They found out that by working us 12 hours a day, seven days a week, our production level actually decreased rather than increased. Even though we were working more, we were producing less in the machine shop I worked at. Think of that. In fact, then they did studies on it. Everything's a study now, and you can get government money. 
you know, and just never do anything all your life except get government money doing studies. It's a great racket. You got to look into it probably. I don't know. So they found out it's true scientifically. You work all those hours, you produce less. God designed us to rest, to take a break, to stop. And it's seen in his creation everywhere. Think of the caliber of men who built this country. They worked hard six days a week and then rested and honored God. Wow. Ever watch a Western movie? They all came together and did what? Church on Sunday. Sunday, go to meet and clothes, right? You put on your suit. had worn the other clothes six days. You only took a bath back then once a week. I grew up. You took a bath once a week. I'm 61 years old. You took a bath once a week. These psychos now are taking two and three showers a day. No wonder they're walking around all masked up and paranoid and freaking out and all that kind of stuff. We took a bath once a week. And if your parents were frugal and there were more than one of you when you were little kids, they threw more than one of you in the tub. You were actually getting a week worth of dirt that wasn't only yours, <laughs> but your brothers too. Isn't that exciting? But they would work six days a week, and then they would gather together and actually honor God. They built this country. They worked hard to make it what it is. And now we have a government that actually pays people to sit on their butts and not work, teaching people not to work when God designed us to work. There's the whole thing of rest versus laziness. We see people who are lazy. But we can be on the other extreme. You know, the Protestant work ethic. It can drive you to the point where you think you can't enjoy yourself or you think you can't rest at all. You have to always be producing. When I was younger, people would say, you need to go on a vacation. Well, after the third or fourth day of vacation, I'd be like, this is what? I need to work. I need to produce. I need to do something. Now I love vacations. <laughs> it's like, I like to rest. Two weeks is wonderful if you can get that much time. Horseshoes is a great thing to do to rest. You're looking for something to do to rest? Horseshoes. Doesn't take a lot of physical prowess to do horseshoes. And it's relaxing. You can have a conversation while you do it. Only have to yell at the little kids if they get too close that they'll get hit in the head with a horseshoe. Get out of here. (laughs) But other than that, horseshoes are relaxing. Some people like to sit in front of the TV, but then you're not really resting. You're more like flatlining, and your brain actually desires to flatline them. Your brain actually like, boop, you're done. There's nothing happening there when you're watching the boob tube, just so you know. You have to be, and that's why you have to go on these digital fasts, these technology fasts. Stuff can overtake you. What about not sleeping at night? All my life I had older people tell me, wait till you get older, you can't sleep at night. You don't sleep at night as good. Well, part of it is, for some, it can be, you got to get up and go to the john two to four times a night. You know, you do die. I know we live in a culture that wants you to never think about death, but death is part of life. 
and eventually you do die. Your body does break down. Some people's bodies break down more rapidly than others. Some abuse their bodies, encouraging the breakdown more rapidly than others. But I have found that, yes, when I was younger, I had much deeper sleep. That melatonin would kick in. You could sleep through anything. doesn't matter what's going on around you. You could sleep. Now, one little pin drops. Matuela, bing, up in bed. What in the world is going on here? Very different. So here's three verses that I think on when I can't sleep. And the worst part of not sleeping is when you wake up about four in the morning. And then you can't get back to sleep until like 6.30. (laughs) And then your alarm clock's off at 7. And you're like, oh, man. So here, I don't count sheep. Okay, and Fred Flintstone taught me to count sheep uh, when I was a kid. But I don't count sheep. I think it's futile. Um, Vain. So what I do is I think on three different passages of Scripture. So I want to share those three passages of Scripture with you. The first being Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. You want to turn there. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. The Scripture says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Amen? Or the King James Version says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusteth in thee. Amen? Yeah. Put your mind on God and you will have peace. So that's a verse that I think on and meditate on while I'm laying on my bed. You know, the psalmist talked about laying on our beds and communing with God. So it's part of life. The older you get, the more communing with God while laying on your bed you'll participate in. When I was young, I would see my dad sleeping on the couch in the middle of the day, and I would think, wow, what a waste. What is he thinking? It's the middle of the day. Sun's out. You're sleeping on the couch. As you get older, cat naps become important. Little cat naps. And just need five to ten minutes, and your little brain gets rejuvenated in your days to go. You don't need to slug down a power drink. You don't need to get your 15th coffee for the day. Just take five to ten minutes and you're ready to go again. Rest. It's built into the created order. The second verse I think on is Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, if you want to turn there. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble... Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So I'll sit there and I'll think on these things. I'll think on this verse and I'll begin to think about those kinds of things. So, and did you notice this verse stands in total antithesis with the whole thing of the tyranny the tyrants have been pushing regarding the pandemic. Okay? We're to think on things are true. There's nothing true that they've been pushing. Whatever things are noble, 
Nobility has to do with honesty, generosity, courage. That thing has nothing to do with any of those things. Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, it's all the opposite of that. So it's good to think on that verse also and to begin to think on those things which are true which are noble, which are just, which are pure, which are lovely, which are of good report. And the last one I think on is Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. You can turn there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. This is a good one when you're all worked up. I had to remind myself of this one like 800,000 times in the last month because I kept thinking about November 30th. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Yeah, you have to make plans. You have to prepare. But you can get so wound up You just need to think on a verse like that and let it all lay still, especially at 4 a.m. in the morning, because guess what? There's probably nothing you can do (laughs) except lay there and think about it and worry about it. That's all you can do it for. You can't call someone then, they'll kill you. you So it's like you can't start driving around picking up the stuff you need. Stores aren't open, that type of thing. Jesus started this thought in verse 24 of Matthew 6. He said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and material possession. Although we live in the midst of a Christianity that thinks they can. <laughs> you know, and they've got all kinds of teachings to make you feel good about your abandoned pursuit of wealth and ease. Jesus said you can't. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And I found that to be true. Put God first in your life. His provision is seen throughout your life. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There's enough to deal with tomorrow that you don't need to sit there and stay up half the night worrying about it today. It'll take care of itself tomorrow. Extremely important. 
So I think on those three verses, and then the fourth thing I do is I pray. If I'm up during the night, I pray for the very things that are keeping me awake, that I'm all running through my mind. This little talk I have to give, running it through your mind, you know. I pray, oh God, help me not to stand up there on November 30th and my mind go blank. Because while I practiced, I've had that happen a few times. How is that possible? I don't know. (laughs) But it's like, how can you do something 50, 60 times and your mind have no reference point? Sad. (laughs) Rest is for the righteous. Mark down Isaiah 32, 18. You see this again and again. Resting is for the righteous. Not the wicked. Mark down Jeremiah 50, verse 6. Jeremiah 50, verse 6. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. You live wickedly, rest isn't going to be part of your life. You live godly, rest will be a part of your life. A nation is an evil, people don't get rest. A nation is righteous, people get rest. I've often said I look forward to the day although I know I'll never probably see it now, where we defeat the evil and the tyrants in the land, and I can sit on my porch, pet my dog, say sweet things to my wife, and watch my grandkids ride their bikes up and down the sidewalk, right? We live in a wicked nation. That ain't going to happen. John Wesley said, I have never known more than 15 minutes of anxiety or fear. Whenever I feel fearful emotions overtaking me, I just close my eyes and thank God that he is still on the throne, reigning over everything, and I take comfort in his control over the affairs of my life. That was a guy who preached five times a day. Have you ever read his journal? Nothing was for sure every day of John Wesley's life. Nothing was for sure. All kinds of troubles with authorities, with Christ-haters, You're out there in the open air preaching. Yes. He took comfort in the fact that he was Christ and his life was in Christ's hands. Charles Spurgeon said, There are times when solitude is better than society and silence is wiser than speech. We should be better Christians if we were more alone, waiting upon God and gathering through meditation on his word, spiritual strength for labor in his service. We ought to muse upon the things of God because we thus get the real nutriment out of them. Why is it that some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advances in the divine life? Because they neglect their closets and do not thoughtfully meditate on God's word. They love the wheat, but they do not grind it. They would have the corn, but they will not go forth into the fields to gather it. The fruit hangs upon the tree, but they will not pluck it. The water flows at their feet, but they will not stoop to drink it. From such folly deliver us, O Lord. Charles Spurgeon. You need those times where you get alone with God and you're quiet with him. Men with lots of children in the house, I used to do this once a year. I'd go away for three days just to be all alone by myself to seek God. To have that time to refire, to reignite, 
to set things in proper balance and perspective. To write down, always have your Bible with you, always have paper and pen. God brings such awesome thoughts to your mind. But it can't just be once a year for three days. It needs to be part of your life where it's done weekly. Not three days weekly, but being alone with him for an hour here, a half hour there, quiet before him, extremely important for our lives. Psalm 37, verse 7 declares, if you want to turn there, Psalm 37 and verse 7. Scripture reads, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. You know, like somebody's out doing you because they're busy out there working their butt off while you're sitting there seeking God. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. We're to rest in the Lord. And I've done a whole sermon on Hebrews 4, what the rest of God is and how we enter it. Spurgeon also said this, he said this regarding resting. He said, rest time is not waste time. It is economy to gather fresh strength. It is wisdom to take occasional furlough. In the long run, we shall do more by sometimes doing less. And I found that to be true. You think you have so much to do, you can't? Put your knees on the ground next to your bed and seek God, then you're too busy. And so often I've done that and I see my day sped. And then I've seen days where I don't do that and you're left thinking, you know, I might have been farther ahead if I would have just never got out of bed today. Ever have those days? I said at the beginning of the sermon that Thanksgiving is a time of rest as were all the festivals in the Old Testament. You do realize that this is the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving, right? First Thanksgiving was in the fall of 1621. This is 2021. Matuela stinks at math, but even he can figure that out. It's 400 years. So it's the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving And I thought I would read a little something to you about this, about this matter. So bear with me. At the time our story begins, the author writes, the Anglican Church of England had become almost as legalistic, apostate, and degenerate as the Roman Catholic Church before it. But also in England there were a group of Protestants who believed that the Bible was the final authority in all manners of life and that the organized church was not the final authority. These Bible-believing Protestants were known as Puritans. They were called Puritans because they desired to purify the Church of England. But even before 1600, some of the Puritans decided that they could not reform the Church of England from within, so they separated from the Church of England and set up congregations of their own. These people were known as separatists because they separated themselves from the apostasy and false doctrine of the organized church. 
One group of separatists under the leadership of William Brewster held Bible meetings in the village of Scooby. English officials persecuted them, and in 1608, Brewster and his group fled from England and settled in Leiden, Holland. Holland. The separatists, or Puritans, preferred farming over city life because they were afraid their children would become more Dutch than English. And they also feared that a war would break out between Holland and Spain. They longed to return to their English way of life, yet they wanted to keep their own type of worship, which was based upon the Bible. Therefore, the new land of America appealed to them, and some English merchants even agreed to finance a trip to America. In July 1620, Brewster led a group of separatists, Puritans, back to England. Then, in September 1620, they set sail for America in the Mayflower. The Mayflower sailed alone from Plymouth, England, with 102 passengers, including women and children. It was a very rough journey of 65 days, a Virginia company, pardon me, a little over two months. They had expected to land somewhere within the limits of the original grant of the Virginia company, but error in navigation led them to the New England region. Adverse winds and shoals off Cape Cod forced the Mayflower to stay north. They dropped anchor in what is now Provincetown Harbor, Massachusetts, inside the tip of Cape Cod on November 21, 1620. The Puritan leaders were uncertain of their legal position because they were in an area without authority. They also knew they would need discipline among themselves. To solve these problems, the 41 men aboard met and signed the Mayflower Compact the first agreement for self-government in America. They elected John Carver as their first governor. The Mayflower Compact was the birth of popular constitutional liberty. In the cabin of the Mayflower, humanity pronounced its rights and instituted government on the basis of, quote, just and equal laws for the general good, all for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, unquote the eternal, eternal truths they held in their hearts, reversed the course of human history and eventually found magnificent expression in the Declaration of Independence. It should be noted here that the Mayflower Compact had its roots in the Magna Carta, which was a document approved in 1215 and declaring certain rights to the English aristocracy, but the Mayflower Compact went a step further in declaring rights to everyone. Even though they were tired and weary, they also knew that winter would be setting in and they needed to know about the country they were in. For almost a month, they sailed up and down the coast around the Cape Cod area. They were forced to take refuge on an island in Plymouth Harbor during a blinding snowstorm. Then on December 21, 1620, they landed at Plymouth. There they found a stream with clear, pure water. They found some cleared land and a high hill that could be fortified. This was once an Indian village, but a smallpox plague had killed all the Indians in 1617. The Puritans decided this would be their new home. The first year in the new land was extremely difficult for the Puritans. Poor and inadequate food, strenuous work, and changeable weather made the settlers susceptible to sickness. The colony lost almost half its members. They went from 102 down to 57. Nearly half the people died the first winter. On an early spring morning of 1621, an Indian walked into the little village and introduced himself 
and startled people as Samoset. Two weeks later, he returned with Squanto. These two Indians introduced the Puritans to Masoy, the chief of the Wampanoag tribe that controlled all southeastern Massachusetts at that time. Governor Carver and the chief exchanged gifts and arranged a treaty of peace. Shortly afterward, the Mayflower and its crew sailed back to England, leaving the Puritans on their own. Then Governor Carver died, and William Bradford became governor of the county, colony. Squanto and his Indian friends taught the Puritans how to catch fish and use them as fertilizer in planting their crops. They planted corn, pumpkins, and beans. They also hunted and fished for food. The bountiful harvest that year led Governor Bradford to declare a celebration. Sometime in the fall of 1621, the Puritans invited their Indian friends to join them in a three-day festival, which we now call the first Thanksgiving. Amen? 400 years later, here we are. And of course, the leftists are busy trying to tell us that it's built upon racism and therefore we should have nothing to do with it, which is a lie. A lot of people like to talk about the first proclamation made by George Washington regarding Thanksgiving, which was done in 1789. But actually, Congress itself had declared Thanksgiving in 1782, seven years earlier. And I want to read part of that briefly to you. Ordered that the following proclamation for a general thanksgiving on the 28th day of November instant, received from the Honorable Continental Congress, be forthwith printed and sent to the several worshiping assemblies in this state, to whom it is recommended religiously to observe this day and to abstain from all servile labor thereon. Here's the proclamation. It being the indispensable duty of all nations... Now, this is an important matter. Notice the thinking of Christians back then. God's kingdom was not just for the individual. It was for nations. Did you notice the songs Ernie was leading us in this morning? Almost all of them talked about nations, the desire of nations. That's all been lost on American Christianity, and that's a whole sermon to dig up why that is and the awful repercussions of the form of Christianity we have in this in this country and throughout the West now. It says, it being the indispensable duty of all nations, not only to offer up their supplications to Almighty God, the giver of all good, for his gracious assistance in a time of distress, but also in a solemn and public manner to give him praise for his goodness in general, and especially for great and signal interpositions of his providence in their behalf. Therefore, the United States and Congress assembled Could you imagine horror of horrors? Think of what we've come in 400 years. Actually, this was only 240 years ago. Therefore, the United States and Congress assembled, taking into their consideration the many instances of divine goodness to these states in the course of the important conflict. Notice their focus was on the states. In the course of the important conflict in which they have been so long engaged, the present happy and promising state of public affairs and the events of the war, in the course of the year now drawing to a close, particularly the harmony of the public councils, which is so necessary to the success of the public cause, the perfect union and good understanding which has hitherto subsisted between them and their allies, 
notwithstanding the artful and unwearied attempts of the common enemy to divide them, the success of the arms of the United States and those of their allies and the acknowledgement of their independence by another European power whose friendship and commerce must be great and lasting advantage to these states. Do hereby recommend to the inhabitants of these states in general to observe and request the several states to interpose their authority in appointing and commanding the observation of Thursday, the 28th day of November next, as a day of solemn thanksgiving to God for all his mercies. And they do further recommend to all ranks to testify to their gratitude to God for his goodness by a cheerful obedience of his laws and by promoting, even in his station, and by his influence, the practice of true and undefiled religion, which is the great foundation of public prosperity and national happiness. It's all lost on Americans now. Most pulpits would have a problem with what Congress said and did then. The whoredom is so huge. The debacle is so big. So in the midst of all that, may we be faithful to Christ. May we continue to gather in our homes and observe Thanksgiving. And take that time of rest and thanks to him for his provision. Amen? Because it is a goodness. Let's stand up and we'll close in prayer. Father, you see the rebellion of our nation and we see your just judgment upon it. In the midst of all of it, Lord, may we be faithful and true to you. May we live our lives in obedience to you, honoring you, enjoying you. Lord, we give thanks and praise to your goodness. Thanks and praise to you for your goodness to us, both in the redemption that we have through your Son, Christ, and also as we see your hand in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our nation, O God. Lord, be glorified here amongst your people in heart and mind and also in practice and in duty. May our hearts burn within us to tell others of you, of your salvation, and of your rule. Lord, we give thanks to you for your goodness to us. And while we were yet sinners, wandering in darkness, you loved us. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, you regenerated us, made us new creatures, that we might live our lives in service to him who died in our stead, For surely we should have been put to death for our sins, but you and your mercy provided a way of redemption through your Son so that we can obtain right standing with you through him and know you. Help each man here to be a priest to his home and to speak to his wife and to his children about the things of you. Help each woman to be an anchor within the home a helpmate to her husband, a nurturer of the children, a bulwark against evil. Help each child to hunger and thirst for you, to live a life that honors their mother and their father. May their hearts hungry for you, hunger for you from an early age, we ask, Lord. God, we pray that you use this little gathering we're doing on November 30th 
in order to provide guidance, wisdom, instruction, leadership for people who find themselves in a nation that becomes more tyrannical week after week. How to live in the midst of that, O Lord, faithful and true to you, to be a blessing to their homes and to the community in which they reside. Bless this gathering on the 30th, two days from now, O God. Pour out your spirit upon it. Use each speaker. Help them to set forth that which you've given them to declare. Give ears to the listeners and light a fire in many hearts, we pray. Lord, we thank you that we know you and that we can live true to you, whether in times of fatness or times of leanness. And Lord, we give thanks to you for your goodness to us, and we ask for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. You can be seated, and we're going to take communion at this time. And you can feel free to take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take communion as only believers are to observe the Lord's table. But if you are a Christian, you can partake with us. We have an open table here for all believers. And we do observe the Lord's table every week at Mercy Seat. We do it because it was the pattern laid out by the early church, but we do it first and foremost here at this congregation to be reminded of his great salvation. Amen? His table reminds us of his great salvation because there's only two elements at his table, the fruit of the vine representing his shed blood and the bread representing his body, and there's nothing else here at his table, showing it's through Christ only and alone whereby God accepts us. There isn't these two elements plus a list of all my good works or a list of all my holy living. My good works and the holy living that I demonstrate are the result or the evidence or the fruit of my saving faith in Christ. Amen? In other words, we don't do those things to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, we do them because we have. And that's an important distinction for each one to understand. So this time at his table is good. If you've sinned, you need to ask God to forgive you. He's faithful and just to do that. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. 